you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will have heard this phrase, a personal relationship with God. It's a sense where our head and our heart know and experience the living God, and not as someone else might, uh, not as we may have read in a book, or not even as our pastor may have told us we should be feeling, but we know from personal experience. And there's a number of ways that we can express that. For instance, there's God as our Father, and we as child. That's a nice way to express that personal walk. God is our friend, even though we tend to use that for Christ. God is our teacher, and we are his student. Or God is our Lord, and we are his servant. And there's all sorts of ways we can express this personal relationship with God. However, there's one way commonly found in the Bible, but is really talked about today. And it's the idea of partnership. We are in partnership with God. And the Bible has a specific word for this, and the word is covenant. And maybe you've heard of covenant before, but sort of dismissed it as one of those technical words that has no relevance for you today. But it does. And this is going to be our focus this morning. And it's because in our journey through Jeremiah, we come to two chapters of joy amongst the gloom. In the middle of the book, there's two chapters that say things. This is from God. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again. Doesn't sound like Jeremiah, does it? But it's there. And so we're going to linger. And in particular, we're going to linger in chapter 31, those few verses that Dorothy read out, starting with verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant. So what are we going to look at today? Well, first of all, what is a covenant? Second of all, why do we need a new covenant? What does this new covenant look like? And fourthly, how can I experience this new covenant for myself? So that's where we're going to go this morning. So first of all, what is a covenant? Well, the word is used about 300 times in the Old Testament and about 30 times in the New Testament. And even though it sounds like it's, a, it's an older word, we still use it today. Where would you use or where would you hear the word covenant today? Sorry? Lawyer's office. And in particular, when you're building a house, often there's a covenant on the subdivision. And that covenant that you sign before you build the house uh, indicates the sort of style and what you can do to your house, whether it becomes to the materials that you use, to the garage and the driveway and all sorts of things like that, and also prohibits you from maybe painting your house bright purple and green or various other things like that. So there's, there's a covenant, a legal agreement, a legal partnership, and there are consequences if either party defaults. But a biblical covenant is much more than this. And another helpful example you may be familiar with is the old-fashioned way we refer to a bride and groom entering a marriage covenant. And this is nearer to the biblical idea of covenant because there's a heart, a personal relationship between the bride and the groom, and it's not just a legal partnership. Now, in the Bible, there are four special covenants between God and his people And then there is the fifth, this new one that Jeremiah is referring to. So what are the original four covenants? Well, the first one 
you are more familiar with than you think. It involves something that we see on a regular basis, especially if you live in Tapanui or near the coast, but not here. So what was that? Yes, the rainbow. Thank you. So the rainbow is the first covenant symbol. And so it was made between Noah and there's a promise. So that, so that with a covenant, there's a promise from God to a person or people. So the covenant with Noah was there will be no more flooding. And the symbol of that is the rainbow. So that's the first covenant in the Bible. The second covenant in the Bible was between God and Abraham. And in this covenant, God made two promises to Abraham. One, that he would multiply his descendants, and the other was that his descendants would live in the promised land. And God was setting apart a people for himself. And a symbol of this setting apart is circumcision. And that was the symbol of setting apart his people for himself. And the next covenant is with Moses and with the Israelites. And so Abraham was promised that his descendants would be more than the stars in the sky. And with the naked eye, you can see about 3,000 stars. And so God rescued out of Egypt the Israelites. And there weren't 3,000, there were about 600,000. And they were on their way to the promised land. So you can see that God was well on the way fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. But through the journey, they stopped at Mount Sinai and God made another covenant, this time with Moses and the people of Israel. And this covenant was, this promise was, I will dwell with you. God will dwell with his people. And that was the promise. And the symbol of that was the law. In particular, the Ten Commandments that were written on stone tablets. And do you know where these were kept? Once Moses came with the second set, where were they kept? Yeah, they were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. So they were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And that was a sign, the law, and their obeying the law, was a sign that God was with them in a special way. God was dwelling in the Holy of Holies. And then we have the fourth covenant, was a covenant with King David. And that covenant was... God promised to David that he would always have a descendant on the throne. There would always be a son of David as king, generation through generation, and the symbol of that as the crown. And so by Jeremiah's day, God had showed him absolutely faithful to all of those four covenants. In Jeremiah's day, there had been no global flooding. The descendants of Abraham were many, and they were living in the promised land. God was dwelling with them in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And there was a descendant of David on the throne. So you'd think in Jeremiah's day, everything would be perfect. And God's people would be happy and God would be happy. But far from it. There was big trouble. God's people were far from living up to their side of the covenant. And even though God time and time again had been faithful to his four covenants, God's people had not been faithful on their side. And this is why Jeremiah is talking about a new covenant. The first four hadn't worked. It wasn't God's problem. He'd been faithful. It was God's people that were the problem. And that's why 
we have in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. First thing we know here is the inclusiveness of the new covenant. The ten tribes of Israel are invited back into this new partnership. Now, I've mentioned this before, but just a brief recap. King David's grandson, okay, under King David's grandson, ten of the twelve tribes split off to form the nation of, of Israel, where two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, stayed with David's grandson to be the house of Judah or the country of Judah. Those ten tribes made their own idols and worshipped them, and they totally rejected God, and God sent prophet after prophet, Elijah and Elijah and others, inviting them back and warning them until they had strayed so far that he used the empire of Assyria to punish the ten tribes of Israel, and they were destroyed. Yet 150 years after their destruction, God is talking to them in this prophecy. It will be not just the house of Judah, but also Israel as well that are included. And that tells us that the new covenant is for those that are close to God, but also for those that are far off, this new covenant. For those that had previously rejected God are invited back in, as well as those who had remained with him. Now, that's the introduction to the new covenant. Then we come to verse 32. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them. So God is referring back to the covenant with Moses and Israel. On the positive, we see that God led them by the hand and he considered himself the husband and Israel his wife. And so there's that loving loving sort of emotional warmth to this illegal agreement that we have here. Typical God. But on the downside, this is where it's clear because they broke my covenant. And this is why the previous four were not working. Because time and time again, generation after generation, God's people were breaking their covenants. And we just need to look at the very first occasion to see how bad it was. So we go back to Moses on Mount Sinai. He's up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people are restless at the bottom of the mountain. Their hearts stray. And so they say to Aaron, make us an idol to worship. And so Aaron makes a golden calf. And so the people of God bow down to this idol calf and say, behold, the God who brought us out of Egypt. We're only talking 40 days and 40 nights, and they've broken the covenant. And this was the pattern, and it was deeply set and unbreakable. And because there was no way to break this pattern of straying from God and hearts being attracted to idols and disobeying God's law, this is why we need a new covenant. And it's a new covenant not just because it's number five and therefore all the other ones are old. It's number five because it's completely different. It's substantially different. But what does this new covenant look like? Well, verse 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And notice again the reference to the house of Israel, that inclusiveness of this new covenant. 
But look how God breaks the pattern of covenant breaking. And he does this by invading our hearts and transforming our minds. Instead of an outward compliance to a legal partnership, God is going to turn us inside out. This new covenant will start from the inside. And so it won't be like a wife that is going through the motions of a marriage but has no emotional commitment to her husband. No, no, and and maybe we do know some marriages where the heart has died between the husband and wife. It won't be like that because God's going to transform us so it will be like we will be like a wife who has all the warmth and love and affection to her husband. It's not going to be an outward compliance to a legal agreement. It's going to be an inward transformation. And the prophet Ezekiel, he picks this up and describes this new covenant as well. And I used this in the call to worship this morning. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart. This is God speaking. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And so see how this fifth covenant, this new covenant, is very different to the four that have gone before. Let's jump back into Jeremiah 31 to see again more about this new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Notice again the inclusiveness of this new covenant. The least to the greatest are welcomed. This new covenant will be around a new community. And it won't be defined, fortunately, by circumcision. It won't be defined by a group of people in a geographical place. This new community of the new covenant will be defined by those people who know God. Who know God from the heart and from the mind one who transforms them from the inside as well as the out. And wonderfully, this new covenant will also be defined by the forgiveness of sins, where wickedness is remembered no more and our sins are completely forgiven. So this then in Jeremiah is a description of the new covenant with its inclusiveness, inside-out transformation, new community, and total forgiveness. And we think, well, how can this possibly happen? And sadly, Jeremiah and those who listened to his message never lived long enough to see the new covenant. Uh, Neither did Ezekiel and the other prophets who herald this wonderful, everlasting and new arrangement with God. Now, it wasn't until some 600 years later, on one Passover evening, that the new covenant was inaugurated. And it was a young rabbi. And this young rabbi, he had 12 followers and they were in the upper room and they shared the Passover. We read in Luke chapter 22, this young rabbi, he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given to you in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And of course, straight away, Jeremiah 31, New Covenant, 600 years later, this young rabbi is proclaiming something amazing, something that's been prophesied 
decades, centuries ago, and it's coming to a head here, the new covenant. And the symbol of this new covenant, this young rabbi is holding up, and it's a cup. And on that cup, well, it will be his blood. Because on that Passover evening, this new covenant was signaled. And on that next day on the cross, with blood dripping from the side of that young rabbi, the covenant was sealed in his blood. Not by a rainbow, not by circumcision, not by stone tablets kept in a golden box, not by a crown, but the new covenant is sealed by the blood of the Lamb. And what makes this new covenant different? What makes it different to the other four? Why is this new covenant not doomed from the start like the others? Well, it all comes to who the covenant partners are. This time the covenant is not between God and his people, but it is between God and his son. And we're going to always let God down eventually, but Jesus, the Christ, will never let his heavenly father down. He alone is trustworthy. Christ alone is worthy to sign off on the new covenant on our behalf. And this is what makes it different from the other four. And this is why this new covenant can also be called the last covenant. Because there will be nothing better. There will be no additions to the work of Christ on the cross. And so, as we take the bread and drink the cup, we are taken up into the new covenant. This new partnership, this personal relationship with God. When we ask Christ into our lives, we are born again. Our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us just as Jeremiah prophesied 600 years before the coming of Jesus. So just before we see how we can apply this covenant, this new covenant to ourselves, just a brief summary, just to help our heads get ourselves wrapped around. There are not four, there are now five covenants. Noah, no global flooding. We've got the rainbow, praise the Lord. Abraham, numbers and land. Great numbers of descendants who lived in the land of Israel. And the symbol of this community set apart was circumcision. Moses, God was going to dwell with his people in a special way. And the symbol of that was the law. David would always have a son on the throne and the symbol is the crown. And now we have the fifth and the final covenant, Christ. What's the promise of Christ? New hearts and renewed minds. What's the symbol of this covenant? Well, it's the blood of the Lamb. So how can I experience this new covenant for myself? How can I enter into a new partnership with God? Well, think back to the beginning of the sermon where I use that phrase, personal relationship with God. Our covenant relationship is just one way of describing that personal relationship. Most of us feel a lot happier with that father-daughter or father-son relationship, and that's great. But this covenant relationship is also very important. So how do we start that personal relationship with, with God? How do we move from the abstract to the personal? Well, humbly we come before God, and we may feel our faith is so small. In fact, we might even be sure that God exists, and or if he does exist, He's so important and I'm so small that, well, he probably won't give me the time of day. 
It doesn't matter how small our faith is, as small as a mustard seed, it's where we put our faith that counts. Even if you have doubts, even if you have hesitations, come to God and tell him. Tell him about your hesitations. Tell him that you think you have no faith or small faith. Tell him of your hurts. Maybe the church, maybe a Christian person has hurt you in the past and, and you just it's just so bad. Tell him. Tell him of your frustrations. Tell him of your dreams, your hopes. Be honest. Be real with the living God. Open yourselves up and talk to your heavenly Father. Ask Christ to be real to you, to show himself to you, to give him the faith, to give you the faith that you need and commit to following him. As you lean into God, speak with him and read his word. If it helps, talk to another Christian. Talk to myself or someone that you know about this personal relationship with Christ. And do not let God go until you have an assurance of his great love for you personally. And as you speak to God, you'll begin to know him as your heavenly father. As you follow Christ, you'll begin to know him as your friend. As you read the Bible, you'll begin to know God as your teacher. As you obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit, you will begin to know Christ as your Lord. And finally, as you come to the communion table, you will know Christ as your covenant partner. As you take the cup, the blood of the Lamb, you will be made new as you stand and walk and live under the covenant, the covenant that Jeremiah prophesied some 600 years before Christ came. Let's pray.